Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Once again, it's a a joy to turn to God's Word, and we're continuing in our series in 1 Thessalonians. This morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, just a a brief reminder, last week Paul was defending his ministry against attacks from his opponents, and he characterized his ministry, reminding us and, and arguing that he sought to please God and not man as a faithful steward of the gospel. That as a a mother, a nursing mother, cares for her children, so he cared for the Thessalonians because they were very dear to him. And that as a father, he exhorted and encouraged the Thessalonians to live a life worthy of God. But, well, that was last week. Remember that our overall section, the overall context, is that Paul has been thanking God and rejoicing in the genuine faith of the Thessalonians. He's thanked them for their faith and the fruitfulness of it. He's thanked them for their genuine lives in the face of difficulty. And, and this morning, Paul's returning to that context and that theme. We're just going to read four short verses, verses 13 through 16. Would you join me as we read God's word together? And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, that this is your word, not just the words of men, We pray that you would use it at work in our lives this morning in Christ's name. Amen. If you think about it, I wonder what could possibly motivate someone to drive up in their own car to a border checkpoint in one of the strongest, largest, harshest regimes in all of history and willingly break one of the rules that that regime has been most intensely trying to enforce. What, apart from a pathological sense of risk or or utter desperation, would convince someone to serve a five-year prison sentence, get out of jail, and immediately commit the same crime again and serve another five-year prison sentence? What could persuade someone to do something like this? Only a conviction that they were acting on behalf of something or someone far more powerful and far more significant than the regime that they were going against. And of course, this is exactly what men and women believed, who were part 
of actively smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain into the Soviet Union for many years. Many would know the story of of Brother Andrew, who was perhaps the most well-known Bible smuggler at this time. Many, Many remember the story of his bold prayer and his willingness to drive to a checkpoint and continue on, even as he saw the four cars in front of him thoroughly searched. The car in front of him, they spent an hour searching his vehicle, pulling hubcaps off, checking trunks, And here is Brother Andrew with his car packed full of Bibles. And he went on. And miraculously, in an answer to his prayer, his car was the only car in the line that was waved through without a single search. Or maybe we remember a group of Christians who gathered in Kiev, Ukraine, and huddled together in the cold for a week, waiting for a rumored and promised Bible smuggler. Some of them having traveled as far away as Siberia, in order to receive a Bible. Why would someone do this? Why would people act like this over a book? Well, the answer, of course, is that these men and women, just like the Thessalonians, believed that the Bible was no mere book, but was the very word of God, through which God works with power in the lives of his people. When we come to today's passage, Paul again declares his thanks and his praise to God for the Thessalonians, this time because they received the word of God, not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And as Paul talks about the power of God's word and the way it worked in the Thessalonians' lives, his main point is this, God's word is at work in God's people. And that is particularly evident in their steadfastness and suffering at the hands who oppose God's salvation. God's word is at work in God's people. And that is particularly evident as they stand steadfast in suffering at the hands of those who oppose God and his salvation. I'd like to walk through this argument together. And and let's start. Let's start to break down Paul's argument point by point with verse 13. Where we see the work of God's word. In God's people. Paul says that the Thessalonians had received God's word, not as the word of Paul or Silas or Timothy, but as the very word of God. In the Old Testament, the prophets repeatedly said that their words were not just their words, but were actually words of the Lord himself. And so they would say things like, thus says the Lord. And here we have in 1 Thessalonians 2, one of several New Testament examples of the apostles declaring that the gospel they preached was not just their summary of what had happened to Jesus, but was actually the word of God himself. And here, of course, is the crucial foundation of our faith, isn't it? That the Bible is not just a historical account about Jesus. The Bible is not just a a mere mythology that describes who we think we are. No, The Bible is the very words that God has spoken, that God has spoken and recorded and therefore still uses to speak to us today. In fact, Scripture claims repeatedly in both the Old and the New Testament that it is the Word of God, and it demonstrates its divinity and its fulfilled promises that were promised hundreds of years before and fulfilled perfectly and its consistency of truth over thousands of years and multiple authors, and among other things, so that we cannot deny the claim of the divine authorship of the Bible 
unless we consider the Bible itself to be either deluded or a fraud. Because it claims and demonstrates that its words are the very word of God. But of course, if these words are the very word of God, if this is God's word itself, then it demands our highest allegiance and obedience. But Paul goes on to say that God's word is not just authoritative, it is also powerful. Paul says that this is the word of God which is at work in you believers. And this is a statement that should thrill us and motivate us. How is a person saved from his sins? How is a person convinced to put his trust in Jesus? How do we grow to be more like God? How are we convicted of our sin and brought to repentance? How do we grow to love what God loves and hate what God hates? How do we grow to be strengthened in our convictions of the truth? How does this happen? Does it just that we grow to be better at this as we practice it over time? No. God is at work in us. God is what brings these things about. And while God has many tools at his disposal, God tells us that the primary tool that he uses to work in the lives of his people is his word. You know, God has promised this all through scripture. This isn't a unique claim by Paul. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said when he said, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. Jesus says the same thing. He says, Father, in his prayer, when he prays to his Father, he says, Father, sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. Peter declares the same thing when he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What brings us to faith in Christ? The word of God. What sanctifies us? The word of God. How does God work in his people? By sending forth his word to accomplish his purposes. That's why Pastor John Nielsen put it this way. He said, God's word is God's chosen way to get his work done in our lives. What a beautiful statement. But this isn't just a theological claim. We can see all over the church the evidence of God's work through his word. One pastor shares the story of Jean Hu Huang and his wife Kirsten, who lived in Germany. Kirsten desired to buy a book for her husband in Chinese because he missed his native language so badly. But after searching all over her town in Germany, the only, uh, the only book available in Chinese was the Bible. They were both extremely disappointed by this, but Sean decided to read it anyways because he missed his native language so badly. And he came to faith in Christ. Kirsten was outraged and she started reading the Bible to convince and refute her husband's new beliefs. And she too was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. There are multiple people in our own church who could share their testimony of coming to faith in Jesus, not from the testimony of someone else, but merely because they picked up a Bible and began to read. But of course, it's not just coming to faith. It's also God's work in our lives. Many of us could share other ways that God's word has worked to make us more like him and to convict us of our sin. This past year, we did a a series in our youth group on God's word and One of our youth staff members here at Westminster counseled our teens this way. He said, when I left for college, 
I was absolutely free to do anything I wanted. And God's objective truth in his word was the only comfort and truth I had in the midst of many lies, temptations, and fears. It is God's word. It is God's word that encourages us, comforts us, strengthens us, holds us fast, and converts us. And I think this begs two questions for us. First, it just begs the question, do we practice what we preach? If the Bible is the very words of God, are we reading it regularly? Are we listening to it? Are we in it? Are we meditating on it? We say the Bible is God's word in us. Do we act like it? Do we stake our lives on it? We say that the Bible is our absolute authority because it's the very words of God. Do we shape our lives as if God's word is our absolute authority? You know, in the 20th century, it was most common to doubt the Bible because of its apparent contradictions or factual errors. I think now in the 21st century, we're more likely to perceive the Bible as out of step with our cultural standards and progress, as inapplicable to our situation, or perhaps personally inapplicable to us because its standards don't seem to work for my situation. They don't seem to meet me for who I am. But those thoughts are all exposed as error if the Bible is what it says it is, the very word of God who is still living and active in us today. And if they are the words of God, we should live like it, reading, meditating on, and submitting to the words of Scripture. I think the second question this begs is, do we believe this promise that God's word is at work in us? I think for those of us who have been Christians for many years, sometimes we start to wonder or we we lose that expectation that the word of God will be at work. We think, yes, the Bible's God's word, but would it actually convert someone? Is it actually going to change me? And that expectation does not match what we say God's word is. It's true that we don't always perceive God's work in us, but even in these times, God is still at work. I remember maybe some of you were like me. I was growing up uh, in our home Uh, We used the back of a pantry door, and every six months or so, we'd use a pencil mark to track our growth. And so all of us kids would mark on a pencil uh, how tall we'd grown. And of course, I'd come maybe after six months and think, well, I haven't grown at all in the last six months. And then we'd mark with the pencil, and here I'd grown almost an inch in those six months. Or other times, I'd look back at last year's line and think, there's no way I was that short a year ago. But of course, the lines didn't lie, and neither does God's word. We may not perceive God's work in us, but God's word is at work in us. And over the years, it shapes us as God makes us more and more of what he wants us to be. Of course, at other times, it's obvious how God's work, word is at work in us. And, and we see this. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, summarized the treasured work of God's word in our, our lives so well when she said this. Let's listen to her words. She said, God's way is to take some word in his book and make it spirit and life. Then relying upon that word, it is possible for us to go on from strength to strength. There is always something new in our lives, she says, and can't we all affirm that now? She says, there's always something new in our lives which calls for vital faith if we are to go on with God. But there is always the word waiting in his book which will meet us just where we are and carry us further on. Well said, because through his word, God is at work in you who believe. 
This is the root of Paul's argument here. But let's go on to the next point that he makes in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul goes on to explain that there is one particular evidence that God's word was at work in the Thessalonians' lives. Namely, that it led them to stand steadfast in the face of suffering. Now, if you've been paying close attention in our sermons through 1 Thessalonians, you'll realize that in the 25 verses we've covered in chapter 1 and chapter 2, this is the third time Paul has talked about suffering. In chapter 1, he said that the Thessalonians became imitators of us in the Lord by receiving the word in much affliction with joy. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul defended the genuineness of his ministry by noting that he came to preach the gospel in the face of much conflict. And here now, Paul thanks God constantly that the Thessalonians have imitated the churches of God in Christ Jesus by suffering the same things that God's people are suffering everywhere. And it shouldn't surprise us that suffering is coming up again and again, because as we've said repeatedly in recent weeks, anyone who is united to Christ by faith, anyone who is joined to Jesus, should expect that the pattern of our lives should match the pattern of Jesus' life. Paul brings this point out by noting that God's people from Judea to Thessalonica and beyond are all suffering the same kinds of sufferings. And why is that the case? Because being part, part of being united to Christ is fellowship with his sufferings. And this point is made actually all over scripture. It's not just something Paul was saying to the, to the Thessalonians. Jesus foretold this to his disciples. You remember in Mark 8 when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Paul and, and, and Philippians even prays. He prays that he might share in Christ's sufferings because union with Jesus in suffering becomes a guarantee and an assurance that we will share with Christ in his glory. Paul's prayer is this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings, may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And Peter makes the same point too. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see the pattern over and over? We share in Christ's sufferings, rejoice in suffering, not because we're some sort of stoics that just don't care about suffering. It's not that big of a deal. We can grit and bear it. No, we're called to name real suffering as evil and painful. But we can still rejoice because fellowship with Jesus in suffering is a sign and an assurance and a guarantee that we will also share in his resurrection glory with him in the future. Now here in the 21st century, I think this point cuts across our tendencies and our expectations. Thanks to the blessings of of wealth and safety, technological progress, medical progress, it can be easy for us to assume that we should be able to prevent or overcome just about any form of suffering that there is. And if we can't, then someone must be to blame. But Scripture reorients our expectations, and it enables us to find joy and peace. See, when we expect suffering, when we expect it because we are living in a still broken world, 
when we expect suffering because we have been united to Jesus Christ, it doesn't surprise us when Satan and our broken world and those who hate the gospel all work together to press suffering on God's people. Instead, it gives us a reason to rejoice because that suffering is part of our fellowship with Jesus. Even in the pandemic that we face now, even as I think about how Satan must be delighting to use isolation and depression, long weariness, job loss and financial insecurity, stress at work, anxiety in the face of illness, fear for those we love, to press on God's people, to squeeze us of our joy. But Satan's work is thwarted because in the time, at this time, God has given us an opportunity to demonstrate that his word is at work in us, giving us steadfast faith, hope, love, and joy because our fellowship in sufferings is a guarantee that we are united to Christ now and will be united to him in his glory in the future. That's Paul's second point. Finally, look briefly at his last point in verses 15 to 16. Paul finishes with what is a note of comfort for the Thessalonians, but he finishes in a way that might be anything but comfortable to us if our sensibilities have been attuned to our 21st century standards. Because Paul comforts the Thessalonians by reminding them that God is not blind to their sufferings and that he will pour out his wrath in justice on those who have opposed them. Paul gives a short history, if you will, of the sins of the Jewish leaders, that they have killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, that they've driven out God's apostles, that they've opposed the gospel, all in an effort to undermine the salvation of those who would believe in Jesus. And what will happen to those who oppose God and seek to bring suffering on his people and oppose the message of salvation? God's word is very clear. Those who oppose God don't just miss out on heaven like a child who gets his dessert taken away. No, those who oppose God will suffer God's wrath, and justly so. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that God's justice will come, and any delay is merely allowing those who oppose the gospel to fill up the measure of their sins. It's an interesting phrase there, that those opposing God and the gospel are filling up the measure of their sins. This is something that God actually says all throughout Scripture. He says that judgment will come when those who deserve judgment have filled up the measure of sins that he intends to punish them for. So in Genesis, for instance, God told Abraham that his descendants would be rescued from Egypt when the Amorites had completed their sins. Or you might think of of Matthew 23, where Jesus told the Pharisees that they would fill up the measure of their father's sins. And so here also, the enemies of God's kingdom continue to fill up the measure of their sins until God's judgment will fall on them for the sins that they have committed. In fact, Paul even says at the end here, at the end of verse 16, that God's wrath has already come upon them at last. You see that wrath has come upon them at last. And commentators debate a bit over what it means that God's wrath has come upon them. Some think that it's, it's, it's spoken in the sense of an army coming upon you. It hasn't actually attacked you yet, but the army is upon us. Judgment is upon them. It has come upon them. Others think that um, perhaps God's efforts to blind the hearts and the eyes of these people who oppose them is already the beginning of that judgment. 
think either one of these is an acceptable translation, but they both communicate the same thing. God's justice and wrath are certain. They are upon us. And the only escape is the blood of Jesus. Now, as we come to a close, can I encourage us that God's wrath may not be a best-selling topic. It may not sell books like God's love does. But God's wrath is a precious attribute of God's. And scripture says this over and over again for God's people. And it's also something that each one of us must confront personally. See, God's wrath is his settled opposition to all evil. It is his perfect expression of justice against all sin and wrongdoing. You know, on earth, we long for perfect justice. On earth, we long for and affirm the wrath of justice against evil. America all nodded in agreement when Judge Aquilina sentenced Larry Nasser to 175 years in prison and declared, I just signed your death warrant when he was convicted for serial sexual abuse. Wrath is also a necessary companion to love. If I love someone deeply and someone hurts them and harms them and I am not moved with anger for them, someone would likely and rightly question how much I really love them. And God is the same way. He acts in justice because that is according to his nature and he responds in wrath against those who persecute his people. And even while we long for many to be saved from God's wrath through faith in Jesus Christ, God's wrath against evil is also our assurance of God's justice and his love. I think the question also, though, is whether we're willing to acknowledge that our hearts, even the hearts of good people, if left to ourselves on our own merits, deserve God's wrath. Are we willing to acknowledge this? See, each one of us contributes by our our selfishness and our sin to the sufferings of the world. At least, I'm sure we all contribute to the sufferings of our siblings and spouses. We can all affirm that in some way. But not only our selfishness and our sinfulness to others, each one of us also rebels against God, our Creator, if we seek to live according to our own way and our own standards rather than His. If we decide to approve what He has said no to, we also deserve the wrath of God. If that's where we stand, we too are filling up the measure of our sins until God's wrath comes. Many of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And over the course of years, many have said, oh, Jonathan Edwards, he was just trying to scare people into the kingdom of heaven. But far from it, far from attempting spiritual scare tactics, Jonathan Edwards sought only to give his people an accurate picture of God's wrath against sin. The infinite weight that will fall on any who are not hidden in Jesus Christ. And so when we hear this statement that God's wrath has come upon those who opposed God's salvation, the question for us is, no matter how secure or good we may feel in ourselves, this is our destiny unless we have thrown ourselves on Christ. But of course, this is the glory of the gospel, isn't it? The reason the gospel is such good news is because we were actually in danger when a Savior came and offered us rescue. And that's precisely why the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is so important. Every single one of us stands in peril under the wrath of God unless we have come in faith to Jesus. And so if there are any who have not done that, would you come to Jesus Christ this morning? 
he has offered to us in the word of God. That, of course, brings us full circle, doesn't it? The word of God, which is the very word of God, is how we are saved. By receiving and accepting the gospel as the words of God, the good news of the gospel comes to us and offers us salvation, just as it did the Thessalonians. That's what changed their lives. It's the same God speaking to us in his word today. That is what will change our lives. Because the word of God is at work in God's people, particularly evident in our steadfastness and suffering. And I pray that the same would be true for us to the glory of God and the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for this word, this word that is the very words of God, this word that is precious because you are speaking to us. I pray that we would come to your word as what it really is, that we would be in your word and delight to watch it work in us to make us more like you. I pray that it would particularly strengthen us during times of suffering. And I pray that it would be effective to rescue many from the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, and those who do not come to Jesus Christ, but oppose the gospel. Father, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.